All right, John chapter 17, we're going to read verses 20 through 26. This is the ending of uh, the great high priest priestly prayer, John chapter 17. And as we saw last week, Jesus prayed for us as he said, Sanctify them in truth, your word is truth. To give honor to the reading of his word, I ask you to please stand as we read together John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. These are the words of Jesus as he prayed. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. This prayer of Jesus is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Um, It could be called the Lord's Prayer. We refer to the Lord's Prayer as that which is found in Matthew in the uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount. Um, A very short prayer which he told us to repeat and and to pray as he prayed. But if we're looking for a, a real prayer of Jesus, this is it. This is the Lord's Prayer. And uh, in fact, next week, we're going to come back through all of chapter 17 and glean some lessons about prayer, how we are to pray, pray in uh, accordance with the way that Jesus taught us and, and gave an example for us. So this is in many ways the Lord's Prayer. As uh, I've been studying this, as we've been studying this for the last number of weeks, I have noticed a, a particular pattern that I think is helpful to us. And so uh, in that, in many ways, there's going to be this is going to be kind of a, a teaching message this morning, and and that's okay. That's uh, really what what I am as a teaching pastor. But we need to teach the word and we need to apply it. But I want to show you some of the structural things that I've noticed uh, throughout um, this uh, chapter. We have throughout uh, John, uh, Jesus' prayer these many many phrases, and I didn't even include them all here that I would call reciprocal phrases. And let, let me give you an example, and I think you'll get the gist of this as we show you these. He said in verse 1, he begins praying this way, Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Glorify the Son, glorify you. Verse 8, The words which you gave me, I have given to them. Given this, given to them. All things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. Verse 11, That they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Excuse me. Verse 18, 
As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Do you see a pattern here? You see the, the, the verbiage that Jesus uses throughout this prayer? Well, it continues. Verse 19, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. 21, now we get into our passage this morning. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. 22, that they may be, may be one, <clears throat> excuse me, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And then he, he ends the prayer with these words, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. It's pretty easy to see that pattern throughout this prayer. These words, this verbiage that Jesus uses, and and if you if you if you think through it, and the and the purpose of the prayer, what you begin to see in all of these statements is Jesus is saying that he has completed the work that the Father has given to him, and the work that he has done, he is giving now to his followers. He's completed his work on this earth, but he hands the baton to believers to fulfill the ultimate work, which will be the Great Commission. Jesus didn't stay on this earth to, um, <clears throat> to do evangelism. He left that responsibility with us. And so all the things that are true of Jesus become true of us. All that he possesses is all that we possess. In fact, um, I think uh, uh, Pauline theology is derived a lot from all of these statements that, that show, because Paul, one of the main things that, you, that Paul states is that we are in Christ. And by being in Christ, thank you, Andrew, by being in Christ, we possess all riches of glory in heaven. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We've been given all things pertaining to God, the life and godliness in him. And you can see that in, in these statements of Jesus' prayer. And so you can see that we are equipped and all of these statements are fulfilled by Jesus, uh, by the Father as he answers these prayer, this prayer. What we're going to see in verses 20 through 26 this morning is this. And I want you to remember this. People come to Christ when we display his unity when we declare his glory and we dis demonstrate his love. Pardon me. <clears throat> Thank you. People come to Christ when we display his unity, when we declare his glory, and when we demonstrate his love. All of those things are his. Any unity that we have, any glory that we experience, any love that we have is derived from him. It is derived from our relationship with him, our union with him. So he says, these are yours. I want you to take it. And he prays that the father will, will perfect these. And as he does, the purpose is evangelism. That people come to Christ. We'll see that. And you, maybe you noticed it in the passages we read it. The purpose is so that the world may know so that the world may believe as they see our unity, as they see us declare his glory, and as they see us demonstrate his love, the purpose is 
others coming to Christ. So in verses 20 through 23, the first thing we see is this. His unity is our unity. His unity is our unity. Any unity that we have, again, is derived from the unity of the Godhead. It's derived from the unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are unified, so we are unified because we are in Christ. He says in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. It's a remarkable statement. At this juncture in the prayer, Jesus says, all these things that I'm praying for, I'm not just praying for the 11 men in this room, Father. I'm praying for those who believe in me through their word. You know who that is? Us. He expands all of these requests in this prayer to include us. He's praying for us. He prayed for us at that time. So all the things that came previously, therefore us, sanctify them and their word is truth. And now all that he's going to pray through the end of the prayer, it is for us as well. Notice he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe. He doesn't say for those who will believe or those who may believe. You know why? He has confidence that it's going to happen. He has faith. It's God's plan. It's the sovereign plan that you would come to Christ. Through what? Through their word. Not their words that belongs to them. The word that they have is derived from the Father because Jesus said, I gave them your word. So any word that, they, that he's talking about here is the word of Christ, the person of Christ, the gospel message that Jesus was sent from the Father. God uses people in the word to bring the world to faith. He uses other people. He uses people and he uses the word of God. He used the believers there and he used their word. And and also he doesn't say those who who will believe future. Interestingly, this is the way that... um, that Jesus always uses the word believe in the book of John, which is believing. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever is believing in him, it's a, it's, it's, it's a state of being, that you're in a state of continual believing in him. And that's the same sense that he uses the word here. Believing in him, it's not just faith in anything, it's not faith in faith, but it's faith in in the Son who is sent from the Father, and it is the word of God, it is the word of Christ that comes through. Now here's the remarkable thing. The faith of every believer in this room can be traced back all the way to the faith of those 11 in that room. Every one of you can trace your faith back to the faith of those 11. That's where it started. And Jesus is looking forward, and he saw 3021 South Sullivan Road and people sitting here on this Sunday, and he knew that you would be believers in Christ, and he's going to pray. The content of the prayer is going to be unity. We'll get to that in just a minute. But the main thing we see is he's he's confident that this is going to happen. So 
for us, it's faith building to look back and to see the faithfulness of those who have gone before us. And we see the, the chain of custody of the gospel has been delivered to whom? To us. It is in our laps, in our lives today. The faith once delivered, we are to contend earnestly for that. We are to guard it and keep it and live it and proclaim it so that in many, many years to come, there might be many believers who could say they can trace their faith back to the faith of people in this room this morning. We look backwards with, with gratitude. We look forward with faith and confidence, the same faith and confidence that Jesus had, if that we are faithful to proclaim his word as he has given to it, people will come to Christ. That's his work takes the responsibility off of us. You don't lead anyone to Christ, but it does tell us that the salvation is of the Lord and we are simply to be faithful to proclaim that gospel because they have kept the word. Now, one of the things that God will use to bring people to himself, people in the world, is unity, and that's really the kind of the, the main thing that he's talking about in verses 20 through 26, and we'll spend more time on unity probably. But here's the thing. People come to faith when we display his unity. People come to faith when we display his unity, and his unity is our unity. He says this. The, he Notice the, the repetition in verses 21, 22, and 23. He says this, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. One again, more of those reciprocal statements. Verse 22, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, in them, <clears throat> excuse me, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Verse 21 says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And then he says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. When the world sees our unity, the purpose of that is so that the world, and by, here, by the way, when he's talking about the world here, um, he's talking about the world as in people. Yes, those who are hostile at this time, but the display, the demonstration of our unity to people who do not know Christ, the purpose of that is to bring them to Christ, that they would believe that he is sent from the Father. To be sent from the Father means the, the person of Christ, the office of Christ, the ministry of Christ, the gospel of Christ. And when the world sees our unity, it is one of the means of evangelism that pulls people to himself. I, it's a remarkable thing. We wouldn't think of that normally. We think we need to get out there and tell, tell people about the gospel. We need, we need to preach. We need to hold, uh, hold services. We need to pass out leaflets on, on people's doorsteps. Somehow they see an observable unity in our midst as the people of God, and, and, and it points them to Jesus Christ. It's all quite remarkable because Jesus has said throughout the book of John, I and the Father are one. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. One of those reciprocal statements. And now he is saying, in a sense, if you have seen my children, my believers, you have seen the Father also. 
what is true of Christ becomes true of us. Not, we're not one in essence with him in the sense that we, we possess the divine, but we do possess his divine presence. And it is by virtue of our union with him that this unity is true. And it's remarkable that he has said throughout the book, I and the Father are one. And what did they want to do when he, when he said that? They wanted to kill him. And now he is saying, we are one with him. One in purpose. We share his spirit. We are in union with him by virtue of what Christ has done for us. There is a very unique way in which believers are united with Christ by faith. So what is the basis of this unity? The basis of this unity is not just surface things that we meet in this particular building or that we're all, of a, of, we're all Americans or that we're all of a specific denomination. The basis of our unity in this passage, and there are other things that we could add to it, but the basis of our unity in this passage is this. The nature of God, Father and Son in unity. The nature of God, because he says that they may be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. This is a theological statement about the, the, the reciprocal indwelling, mutual indwelling of Father and Son. He doesn't mention the Holy Spirit here, but he's included. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They cannot be divided And so the basis of our unity is an understanding of the nature of God theologically that God is one. A belief and an understanding of the Trinity. If we do not agree on the Trinity, there is no unity. If we do not agree on the unity of God, that he is one, and that he is uh, demonstrated and shown himself in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have no unity. There is no unanimity. There is no agreement. So the nature of God is the basis of our unity from this passage. Another basis of our unity is the mission of Christ that they would know that you sent me. Because if they believe that he is in the Father and the Father is in him, he has a specific office of of, of Redeemer, of Messiah, and he has the mission of redemption, of dying on the cross for our sins, is the gospel. He is the sent one. And so if we do not agree on the elements of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ was sent to die for our sins, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that Jesus Christ is one with the Father, if we do not agree on those things, there is no unity. These are all theological, but they are to be practical as well. The third basis of our unity is this, the word delivered. How do we understand the gospel? How did we come by their words, the words of those who came before us, which is the word delivered, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. The nature of God, the mission of Christ, the word that was delivered to us in this passage, this is the basis of our unity. If we do not agree in those things, if we do not agree that this is the, the infallible, uh, inspired word of God and that it stands forever, then we have no unity. We have no basis of unity. These are the elements of the things that we must believe in order to have the unity that Jesus speaks of here. And the result of this unity What is the result? That the world may believe that you sent me. 
That's what Jesus said. The result of the unity that we have is that the world may believe that you sent me. This is the work and the person of Christ, salvation. The Father sent the Son is the entire message of the Gospel of John, isn't it? That's what it's all about. He sent his Son. This is what Jesus has been saying all along and what he has been saying uh, to his disciples and to the Jews. He sent me. The Father sent me. And this is the good news of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his only begotten son. For what purpose? That whoever believes in him is believing in him will not perish but have everlasting life. But this unity for the purpose of the salvation evangelism, that is, it must be observable to the world in some way for them to see it. Verse 22, he said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. Verse 23, In them, in I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. So two times in the span of three verses, he says, we are to be unified so that the world may believe that he is sent. And then he says, we are to be unified so that the world would know that he is sent. So here are three things I want you to, um, to remember. Number one, we are united in principle. Oftentimes theologians call this in position, our position in Christ. In principle, we have unity with Christ and we have unity with one another by virtue of what we've just said, seen here. Our union with Christ puts us in Christ and Christ lives in us. And by the way, you see uh, in the scriptures that all three persons of the Trinity live in us by virtue of our union with Christ. But um, by virtue of that union we have uh, this principle of unity that resides in us and it is in our midst. But we are to be united in practice. It's not enough that we just say, hey, yeah, we, we, we possess this unity in Christ, but then we don't get along with one another when we don't get to agree with one another. There must be a unity in practice that is observable by the world in some way. Unfortunately, that's not the case oftentimes, is it, in the church? Jesus doesn't speak to disunity here. Instead, he holds the, up the gold standard of what it is we did, are to be striving for. He doesn't even go to disunity. He just says, we are unified and we are to be unified in practice. Ephesians 4.3 says, we are to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Our responsibility as Christians is to do everything that we can to preserve the unity that we already have in the bond of peace that we have with one another, but it is something that the world can see in some way. It is like a triangle. Sometimes I explain to uh, couples uh, trying to help them to understand how you can grow closer to one another in marriage. In a triangle, you have God at the top and you have husband and wife at the, at the lower angles. And as you grow upward and closer to your, in your relationship to God, you come, become closer to one another. And as, the more we grow the clo closer to him, the more we grow, grow closer to one another. And that's how our unity works in a practical sense as well. 
we should ever be growing more and more in Christ's likeness. We should ever be on that incline, becoming more and more like Christ. And when that happens, we are becoming closer to one another, more unified with him. Kent Hughes, however, says this. He says, that unity, though, does not mean uniformity. Does not mean uniformity in everything. In the Trinity, there exists a unity in diversity. Three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, but they are one God, so there's diversity. But suppose, he says, for a moment, we could bring some of the great Christians of the centuries together under one roof. From the 4th century would come the great intellect, Augustine of Hippo. From the 10th century, Bernard of Clairvaux. From the 16th, the peerless reformer, John Calvin. From the 17th century would come John Wesley, the great Methodist advocate of free will. And along with him, George Whitfield, the evangelist. From the 19th century, the Baptist C.H. Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. And finally, from the 20th century, Billy Graham. And then he says, that's a lot of unity, right? He says, if we gathered all these men under one steeple, we would have trouble. And we would, because each of them represents a different faith tradition. And we have a faith tradition that we hold dear to. We have core beliefs that are important to us that we hold on to. And they did as well, even though some of those were different. He said, uh, we would be unable to get a unanimous vote on many things with those men together. But underneath it all would be unity. And the more the men lifted up Christ and the more they focused on him, the greater their unity would be. There would be unity amidst a great diversity of style and opinion. And that's the way it is to be in the church as well in our church. We are more unified and should be as Valley Bible Church on our core principles and core beliefs. But that does not mean uniformity. It does not mean unanimity that we're always going to agree It doesn't mean sameness, that we're cookie-cutter Christians and we all look the same and talk the same and act the same. We should be talking like Jesus and becoming like Jesus, but in our own personalities, he's changing us. But we are unified in those core principles of, of the essence of God and the gospel and the word of God. And again, this is all so that the world may believe and know that the Father sent his Son. We live in a world of division, don't we? Man. The world is fragmented in so many ways, and our unity is a divine revelation to the world of his existence, of his nature, of his mission, and his word as we live out that unity. The question is, how are we doing? How are you doing in your unity with other believers? Are you at odds with someone? Are you not liking someone? Is there someone you haven't spoken to? Is there someone who will not speak to you that is a brother or sister in Christ? Is there this disunity that God has not designed 
that we should eschew, that we should, we should let go of, we should lay hold of the unity that he has for us. I encourage you to unity. That doesn't mean you have to agree on everything, but you must be united on the, the essential things. So we are unified and we are united in principle. We are to be united in practice. And thirdly, we will be united in perfection. We will be united in perfection. Our unity is to come to full maturity as believers in that unity. And oftentimes, we lower the standards on this perfection. Jesus said in verse 23, I I, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know. There's a a completion, a perfection, and ever growth in our unity that should be observable to the world. And yet when we see the word perfection, we, we want to say, make excuses like, well, nobody's perfect. God knows my frame. He knows that I'm a sinner. And when he wants to change me, he'll get around to it. And we want to lower the standard instead of raising the standard because Jesus said, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But he didn't say, but don't worry about it, because I know you're not perfect. Did he say that? Now, we are to raise our standards, recognizing in this life we will not meet them, but we should always strive for complete perfection, which is maturity, which is what the word means here. 2 Corinthians 7.1, for instance, says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are to be ever growing toward the, the perfection, the maturity of full holiness. Philippians 3.12, Paul says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on toward it. He, re- he didn't say, well, nobody's perfect and God doesn't expect me to be perfect. No, he said, I'm, I'm, I'm heading up. I'm heading onward. I'm going to pursue that perfection. That doesn't mean we hold one another to a perfect standard. Say, be, the, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And then the, the, our own standard is, oh God, thank you for forgiving me. No, he wants us to be ever growing in that perfection. So much so that Paul also said in the book of Ephesians, he gave some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God that is really sent from the Father to a mature man, it's the same word, talios, perfection, the end of it all. The purpose of it all is that we become mature people to the measure of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. We always hold Christ as the one that we are, we're working toward being like, not lowering our sights to Ben Orchard or somebody else. We are always looking to the measure of the stature of Christ, the perfect one, and we are always pursuing that direction of perfection. And so that is what Jesus is talking about in this prayer when he says, we are to be united and perfectly united in unity. We're going to fail. 
right? We all fail. But in any process of of growth in the Christian life, that is what God uses to make us more and more aware of our need and our dependence on him that it would be constant, that we would grow more and more into the likeness of Christ. And again, our unity, observable in some way to the world, results in people coming to faith in Jesus Christ. So his unity is our unity. And we are to live it out perfectly as we can. Second of all, his glory is our glory. Any glory that we have is derived from him. In verses 22 through 24, Jesus began this this prayer in in verse 1 by saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. There's a first reciprocal statement there. And I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world. How did Jesus glorify his Father on earth? By obedience, by declaring who he was, through his words, through his works, in all that he did, he was making known the manifest manifestation of the character and the person of who God is in his Father. And Jesus has mediated that glory to, to the world, to the Jews, to his, his disciples, and now he is asking, he now he tur- turns to his disciples and says, Father, I've given them your glory. May they glorify you. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. For what purpose? That they would be one just as we are one. How has he given us his glory? It's hard to know and um, uh, theologians are not in much agreement, but I think it has to do with John 1:14, where it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory of the the only begotten of the Father. His glory was described in two words, full of grace and truth. That's how John summed it up. The manifestation of the glory of the Father, grace and truth. Are you people of grace and truth? We, are, we manifest the glory, the, the character, the nature of Christ as we are people of grace to one another in grace to the world. And as we are people of truth, your word is truth. We are, we are people of the word. And as we manifest grace and truth, that is the resident derived glory because it says this in Colossians 1. The mystery which has been hidden from, from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your union with Christ, his residence in you, that is the glory that you have in him. Same as receiving his word, receives his glory, and that's the, the, the task that we have then to bring glory to him. So we possess his glory in principle, as he says right here. We've seen that throughout the scriptures and in Colossians 1, 26 through 27. We possess his glory in principle. He has given it to us, Jesus says, 
but we declare his glory in practice. We are to, gl- to declare his glory in practice. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. This is a, a verse you should have memorized. It's a verse that you should live by and state often, which says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything you do to make him known, to speak his words, to show his love, to show his unity, to show his son. We are to do as Jesus did. What did Jesus do? He made the glory of the Father known. And now he's praying for, the, for his disciples that we too would make his glory known. We are to glorify God. That means we make him known in all his ways. We make his love, his mercy, his holiness, and his love known by the way we live our lives. We don't ever take the credit we always say it's, it's him, it's about him, and it's not about me. We always give him the glory. So we possess his glory in principle. We are to declare his glory in practice, and we will see his glory in perfection. John five twenty four, where he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me Be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. Notice that the desire of Christ's heart, uh, coming to the end of this long prayer for his disciples, and he says, Father, I, I want to see them. I want them to be with me. I long for the day that this is this eternal longing of the son asking of the father that he would deliver those safely to him on that day. That where I am and he's speaking as if he is in heaven in the, in the presence of the father, they may be also for this purpose. I want them to see. I want them to see the glory that you gave to me that I had before the foundation of the world. I see this like uh, a father who loves his, ch- his child and it's, a, and it's Christmas morning, has this wonderful present that is prepared for this child. And I, he's, he goes, I just can't wait for morning to come. I can't wait to see his face when I give him that present. I can't wait to see her reaction when she sees all that I have given to her and all that I've done for her. And that's what Jesus is praying. Father, I I long for the day. And and this is the consummation of all things is what he's looking at here. When we are with him and we see him as he is and we become as he is and we see his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. His unity is our unity. His glory is our glory. And his love is our love. In verse 23, in verses 25 through 26. Verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me. And here he introduces the word love for the first time in the prayer. And love them even as you have loved me. Verse 23 is the first mention of love in this prayer. It's then used five times in verses 23 and 24 and 25 25 and 26. Love becomes the pinnacle of his prayer. 
because it is really the end of all things, like, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians, that you can speak the tongues of angels, if you can give your, your body to be burned, if you give to the poor. But if you, you can do all these religious things, but if you don't have love, you're zero. It counts for nothing. And this becomes the pinnacle of his prayer. So he says in verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. Why does the world not know him? Because the world is not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. But I have known you, he said, and these have known that you sent me. They are believers, the eleven and us. And he ends the prayer with these words in verse 26. And I have made known your name to them and will make it known. This is the promise of the future. Jesus is going to continue to make his name known in us and through us until he comes back. And will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. He ends the the, the prayer with one of those reciprocal statements that your love may be in them and I in them. He prays for us that his love would reside in us, that he would reside in us because to know Christ is to know his love. To have Christ in your life is to have his love in your life. They cannot be separated from one another. So we possess his love in principle. Romans 8, 39, nothing is able to separate you from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus. We are to demonstrate his love in practice. How many times do you see that in the scripture? Not too long ago in chapter 13, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And third, we will experience his love in perfection. 1 John 4, 12 says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, as we're commanded to do, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Jesus is perfecting his love amongst us as we love one another, as we abide in him and he abides in us. We demonstrate that we are the ones who accepted the one who was sent so that the love with which you love me may be in, in them and I in them. So Jesus closes his prayer, not with a request, but more uh, of, a, of a vow and a pledge, a promise, a resolve. I will make your name known so that they will know that I love them and that I will live with them. Jesus vows to love us at this point, to die for us, that we might believe and make that love known to the world. And as he closes this prayer, he's saying, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this thing, Lord. I'm ready to move forward. And I've prayed all that I can pray, and this is the end of it, that, that those that I die for would know my love and that I would be in them. The next thing that's going to happen, we'll see here in a couple weeks, is he's going to be arrested and he's going to go to the cross. But these are his last words to the Father saying, Lord, do these things. I'm ready. 
Let's go. So where we started this morning is where we end, and that is this. People come to Christ when we display his unity, we declare his glory, and we demonstrate his love. So how are you doing with unity? How are you doing with love? Is there someone that you have disunity with? Is there something you can do to, to, to fix that, to repair that? You must. Because the world is watching. And people will come to Christ as they see our unity. When they see that we repent, when they see that we forgive each other, John said in 1 John, he said, the one who says he loves me but hates his brother is not telling the truth. It's a liar. We don't want to be liars. Honestly, can you say, is there someone that I've hated? Is there someone that, uh, that uh, I just have a real problem with and I'm not loving them? Time to repent of that. Because it is our love and it is our unity that shows the world that God is real. And when God sees churches and believers that are at each other's throats and can't get along with one another, someone said that's the greatest cause of atheism in the world. We don't want to be the cause of atheism. We want, the, we want to be the cause of people's growth. The people coming to Christ. And lastly, I asked you before communion, do you, do you believe this stuff? Do you believe in him? Do you know him? Do you see the unity, the love in this room such that you believe in Christ? The essence of God, the nature of God, the mission of Christ that he came and died for you, and the word that is delivered to you this morning, believe. Accept that. Bow your heads, please. Father, we take a moment to ask for anything for which we need forgiveness. We are not perfect, and we still fall short of your glory. Forgive us for lowering that standard and slugging, sloughing off sin in our lives, for taking advantage and presuming on grace. And Lord, if there are those here this morning who have something between another brother or another sister in Christ. If there is disunity, I pray that you would root it out through holiness, through grace, and through truth, that you would be glorified in reconciliation, in love. Help us to be a church, Father, that exhibits your unity and your love in all that we do. And I pray for any who are here this morning who might now understand and be the object of Jesus' prayer this morning, that they would believe that you have sent your Son, that they would know that your Son has been sent on their behalf, that they would believe right now that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They would place their faith and their hope in him alone for eternity, that they would turn from their sin and turn to the glory and the righteousness and the holiness that is found in Christ, that they would find grace and truth in your beloved Son and know that your love dwells in them this morning. In his name we pray. Amen.